A Lincolnshire farmer has won an award for producing the highest oilseed rape yield in the country this year. How did he do it? A lot of it's down to soil health. I've got my soil in really good health by the use of cover crops and manures. We'll hear from Mark Stubbs from Calsthorpe near Louth shortly and we'll ask the question, who's your Julie? Sometimes she, you know, offers advice. Sometimes it's just a case of a problem shared is a problem half. Charles Anion is here to tell us more, plus Sean Sparling with agronomy and a report on his day out in London this week. Kit Dickinson reviews the markets and we'll see what this week's weather has in store. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Good morning, into December then, and winter draws on. And of course, Christmas is coming, that goose is getting fat, apparently, but are there enough of them? And what about turkeys? Philip Mowbray from TT Turkeys joins us. Philip, good morning. We spoke some months ago when all the talk was of shortages at Christmas. Three weeks away from the big day, how are things? We've got approximately 24 birds left on our books, and we haven't advertised this year. Usually we'll put out our signs late October but because we had such an influx of orders in September we haven't done to protect our old customers so they get the birds they want uh, but we've had uh, unprecedented amounts of orders so so far looking fine but we're running very tight at the moment. Are there going to be shortages generally do you think? I have heard of a couple of uh, local butchers who have sold out of things already turkey-wise we know that geese are already at a shortage because of the problems with the breeding flocks on the continent. Inevitably, it's going to be affected to some extent by shortages of processing workers, delivery staff and this kind of thing, although they've taken on a lot of temporary staff, haven't they? Yeah, and uh, the government have opened up for some foreign staff to come back in. That has been one of the main issues. One of the, the big processes that we're aware of were 800 staff short uh three or four weeks ago but i know for example for us with a small team of 15 we've been four of our key people like because they just haven't come back to the uk is there any difference in terms of size and quality available this year uh for us we went particularly heavy on our weights this year and it looks like it's going to pay off looks like everybody's going to be allowed to get together for christmas And because people had such a poor Christmas last year, they are having family and friends over. And our bird sizes definitely on the increase for the larger birds. So that's been a little gamble that's paid off well for us. Let's wait and see what happens elsewhere. It's farming, isn't it? You just have to take an educated guess with it, I'm afraid. And you, you of course, are selling proper free-range turkeys. Have prices been affected this year? Uh, Of course, (laughs) Mm-hmm. There's always price increase. The energy costs have gone up. Things like cardboard costs for the boxing has gone up. The gas price has gone up. Everything has crept up. So, yes, we have had to put 10% on our price this year. But at least with our clients, they know the quality of the product that they're getting. They know that we're not in the market just to make the maximum amount of money. We want to provide them with the best possible Christmas dinner. And I think that they appreciate that. And it hasn't affected our sales at all. Jolly good. All right, well, an early happy Christmas. Thanks for joining us, Philip. You're very welcome. Great to talk to you. Philip Mowbray from TT Turkeys at Woodall Spa. Sean Sparling will be talking agronomy shortly, but first, in last week's report, Sean, you teased us about a trip to that London this week. I know you can't tell us all, but what can you tell us? 
Yes, that's right, Steve. Yeah, I can't say too much about it because of NDAs, etc. But I was down there in London to discuss the future trajectory, really, of agriculture from a perspective of advice and regulations, supplies, the national food strategy and all of that, the national action plan, the EU Green Deal, etc., etc. And to discuss CRD and ELMS and other things. That's really following up from last spring, I suppose, when I gave evidence to the select committee in the House of Lords on those things. What I can say, though, is that it's going to be less straightforward than many people thought, but there may be far more talk than action, which is what we're seeing now. In general terms, the EU Green Deal, which incorporated and comprised and will lead on to various levels of policy change, that saw the National Food Strategy Plan Part 1 go on to the House of Lords via a white paper from the government. The Agricultural Bill and the Environmental Bill had been adapted for that. The Lords then made their amendments, sent all that back to government, but as we now know, many of those amendments didn't actually get in some of which were there to protect our farms and our farmers here in the UK but that bill will then go into the National Action Plan so you have the innovation and the regulatory teams from various UK farming organisations, manufacturers etc all trying to move the regulatory issues forward, things like gene editing all in order to secure the future of food production here in the UK since we left the EU so it's all ongoing, it's all fluid but it's all wrapped up in so many levels of red tape by policymakers who can or will not make those decisions but as an industry the important thing is we must engage with both the government and the NGOs for the sake of our own industry and I'll give you an example of why it's so important that we all of us play a part all of us in this industry we mustn't just rely on the few who always engage we must all get involved so if you remember the National Action Plan the NA There was an open consultation where everybody had the opportunity to give their views on the future of farming by responding to that. And there were only 38,000 responses to the NAP, the National Action Plan consultation, and just a thousand of those were from people within our industry. So 37,000 of the 38,000 have come from NGOs and activist groups and bodies who are actively seeking to shape the way forward of farming and not farmers. So is there any wonder that we're headed down the route we are headed down with if we don't even respond to a plan that we can actually shape? So As we move forward with things like the clean air consultations, for example, where reducing ammonia emissions is important, we have seen how our industry can pull together. When our industry lobbies solidly with one voice, these things are now under stewardship rather than being otherwise. So we can influence and we can shape change, but we have to be all in and we have to fight for it. Our industry must engage, otherwise we're going to get what we're given. We also discussed CRD, the the chemical regulatory division, which manages a lot of our plant protection products, etc. And since we left the EU, because we have a lack of experience as a resource to call upon, there's a lack of pragmatism, there's a lack of industry consultation on policy, and much of our policy and our plant protection product regulation is now and pasted 
from our days within the EU. There's a real lack of coordination or any real change in philosophy in the regulatory departments. And I think that's an area that we need to be concerned about as we move forward. Because as somebody put it to me the other day, they're trying to manage the unpredictable. So it's all very, very complicated going forward. I think we have to impress upon CRD that it's vital we maintain active ingredients to maintain a competitiveness on not just the EU stage, but the world stage, and that we continue to grow crops that are world-beating because of access to these active ingredients. So very complicated, as I say, but myself and AICC, the Association of Independent Crop Consultants, my council, etc., we're looking into how we can help CRD better understand the impacts of these decisions which are taken by showing them the coalface, taking them out to the pointy end, as it were. So we shall endeavour to help them out that way. So there you go. I said I couldn't say much, but I seem to have done quite a lot and said quite a lot. I should have been a politician myself. The takeaway message from that for me has got to be engagement. If we don't, as an industry, have our say and respond to requests for input and comments, we really can't complain that much if we don't like the end result. Now, a bit of success for a Lincolnshire farmer who's won Yield Enhancement Network's Gold Award for the best oilseed yield in the country, 6.7 tonnes per hectare against a five-year average closer to 3.5. Mark Stubbs of AC Stubbs & Sons at Calsthorpe near Louth, congratulations. How did you do it? A lot of it's down to soil health. I've got my soil in really good health by the use of cover crops and manures. Okay, what do you use as a cover crop? I use spring oats and mustard, white mustard. Right, and what do you do to the soil to keep it so healthy? After winter wheat, I put in a cover crop and then I'll destroy that with glyphosate after January the 15th. I'll then leave it for six weeks, so usually the 1st of March sort of time. I'll then apply poultry manure. Then we incorporate the poultry manure within six hours usually because I feel that it's best to incorporate it quickly. Then you don't get the all the ammonia sort of gives off to the atmosphere sort of thing. Then we'll drill with a spring crop. So the oilseed rate will still get a bit of benefit from the manures from the previous crop. Mark, what seed are you actually using? I always use a hybrid variety. The one which got me this yield was a variety called B367OL from Decal. It gets away quickly, then it goes to sleep through the winter, and then in the spring, it really romps away. And cost-wise, is the hybrid more expensive? Hybrids are more expensive than using conventional varieties, but... The advantage I see with a hybrid, you can drill it and forget about it more than you could a conventional. I feel with a hybrid, it's consistent. So although you will get yield peaks and troughs, they're not very big. But with a conventional variety, I find that you get really large peaks and troughs. You're spending a lot of time putting a lot of stuff on the soil. You're paying more for your seed, but you're getting a much better yield Does that work out with the right result at the end of it? You're not spending more than you're getting back at the end of it? No, definitely not, because I'm fairly low input. So once I've got it all drilled, I will then spray probably three weeks after it, when it's come through, a chemical called Falcon to get rid of volunteers. And I also put an insecticide on um, for flea beetle reasons. And then a month later... I'll follow up with another chemical called Exchange and Centurion Max. That's 
more for black bass reasons. And then a month after that, I'll then follow up with Astro Curve and a fungicide called Plover. And then again, I'll put another insecticide on, which we are trying to get away from these insecticides. But unfortunately, for the sea beetle reasons, we're having to do the insecticides. That's basically all my spraying finished until flowering. Right. And are you harvesting any later than would be the average? Last year, I harvested later, and that is what I put a lot of it down to. Some of my earlier harvest crops got hit flowering with the April frost. So this winning field didn't flower until after the frost. With rape, if it does flower later, it'll go out of flower a bit quicker. I like that with rape because... I find if you've got too much flower, the sunlight reflects off the flowers and doesn't photosynthesize the leaves properly. So Interesting. Um, yeah. having not a very good flowering as such, but good enough for pollination helps on photosynthesize. Mark, fascinating stuff. Thanks for telling us all about it. Congratulations on the award and thanks for joining us on the Farmy programme this morning. OK, then. Thank you. Another Lincolnshire farmer won the silver award for rapeseed and gold for their wheat yield. And we'll talk to Tim Lammyman on next week's farming programme. Back with Sean Sparling and agronomy. Impressive result from Mark A. With all the variables, though, that are beyond any of our control these days, not least cabbage stem flea beetle, the weather, the cost of nitrogen fertiliser and compound fertiliser, to name just three, it's all a game of luck accompanied by nerves of steel if you're going to grow rape at all, let alone try and throw money at it to deliver record-breaking yields. Very fine line between bravery and disaster, but very well done, Mark, though, obviously. So, if you'll pardon the phrase, my bits are going to get shorter and shorter over the next few weeks. So, just a quick run-through on the crop situation. Allseed rape, not much to add really to last week. Really think about whether a fungicide is necessary. Look at your disease ratings by variety, look at what's in the field, and look at the crop size itself. The smaller backward crops, they're at the highest risk of any foma moving from the leaf down to the stem, although that movement will be very, very slow in the temperatures that we've got at the moment. But do judge each crop or each field on its merits and on its symptoms in the field. Light leaf spot still there, but again, it really won't spread particularly rapidly. And as fungicides only give you three weeks protection or so, if it's going to come cold, which it inevitably is, on Thursday at 11am, for example, soil temp in my week was just 5.1 degrees C. And at four degrees or below, the crops will go into stasis or just ticking over. So the conditions are going to protect these crops for longer than three weeks. In fact, for as long as it stays that cold. So not only think about whether the fungicide will do any good, but also about whether it might do more harm than good against soil surface and soil fungi, which are doing a lot of good for us. So if it's going to do more damage to them than it will against the diseases you're after, then is there any point doing it? As I say, though, if the need is there, talk to your advisor about the best tool for the job. You can always pop it in with a propizomide if you're going through with that, if need be, but not, of course, if there's a rime frost on the leaf or if it's frosty, in which case just put the propizomide product on alone, please. Also, ensure that you're following stewardship guidelines for the application of that propizomide, especially no heavy rain, 48 hours either side of application. You don't want to do it if the drains are 
running near the field. If the ditches have got water in them, no slope greater than 5% or a 1 in 24, etc. The VI guidance, if you Google propizomide guidance through the VI, you'll find what you need to know there. Oh, and uh, don't forget about the slugs, the winter stem weevil in the rape, the rabbits, the deer, the hares, the pigeons, especially the pigeons, though, which seem to have arrived in force over the last few days. So flashers, bangers, whizzers, twizzlers, rockets, scary things at the ready and deploy as required. If you scare them as far as your neighbour, then you've done your best, I think. Um, cereals, very little change. Top-ups of flufenicet still going on out here to take the worst blackgrass fields up to 360 grams of flufenicet. Remember, it's a maximum of 0.9 litres per hectare of Liberator in total. 0.6 of a litre pre-emergence followed by 0.3 after a six-week minimum interval. Speak to your advisor and you can't apply crystal which also comes as ice or trooper but you can't apply crystal to a pre-em to a crop drilled after the 31st of november so make sure that your paperwork's right and that you're right bit of a minefield i know all of this restrictive practice but if you and your advisor know where the mines are then you're going to be fine aphids few and far between haven't really been cold enough to stop them mind you um i was asked the other day how cold it has to be to kill an aphid it takes several minus six degrees or below to kill them so if you're finding colonies then do consider treating them especially in the frothier crops the earlier drilled crop money spiders are okay down to about minus five degrees so probably let them chomp away through the winter months on the aphid stragglers winter beans they're fine they need very little help from us but do just watch those pigeons i have seen damage from them in the past and from slugs so keep your eyes open so that little bit of snow and rain that we finished last month on gave us 24 millimeters of rain through november at home of that 13 mil fell in the final six days or so and it's that dryish november that means as we hurtle towards the new year it's pretty good from a crops in the ground perspective out there all things considered mostly sprayed up as well black grass largely under control and some very very good looking crops to take us into spring 2022 so on that bombshell we'll see what the next seven days bring thanks as ever sean careful of those bits getting shorter well it is chilly out there who do you turn to if things are getting tough if you're worried anxious things getting on top of you who would you call or do you, like so many of us, bottle it up, make it worse, and join the vicious downward circle that never leads to a solution? Lincolnshire farmer Charles Anion is an ambassador for the Farming Community Network and has launched a social media campaign called Who's Your Julie? which is trying to get us all thinking about who's there when we scroll down our list of contacts that we'd call when we need an ear or a shoulder. Charles, good morning. Tell us about the campaign, please. And first, who is Julie? Julie is an ex-girlfriend of mine from many years ago and a very close friend. And she is the person I talk to if I have, you know, something on my mind, if I have worries. Uh, She's the person I talk to. Sometimes she, you know, offers advice. Sometimes it's just a case of a problem shared is a problem halved. I sort of instigated it because I wanted everybody to have a think about who they talk to in times of crisis because when things are times are going well people don't think about it but um it's just essential when when things go a bit wrong to to know who that person is so it's just a case of getting people thinking who their network is who can they talk to to share those problems when they arise there's a lot of isolation because of the nature of the job and if there is any worry or anxiety in your life 
that tends to build it up, doesn't it? Because you've no one there to say, oh, God, this happened to me yesterday, or I'm a bit concerned about that. You sit there in your tractor or in the field or wherever it may be on your own for an awful lot, and that problem tends to build and build and build, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, um, you know, we're, we're lucky now with modern communication is is better than it used to be. So there's always going to be someone on the end of the telephone. But, um, yeah, as, as farmers, we do spend an awful lot of time on our own. And it is vital that, um, you know, we have a bit of human interaction every now and then. Luckily for me, I've, I've got some very good friends. But uh, Julie is someone I could talk to about almost anything. What do you want people to do with this campaign? I want people to get on social media and tell us who, you know, their Julie is. We've seen some wonderful Julies from all over the world over the last week. Friends, neighbours, husbands, pets, cats, dogs, just all these important people who help us mentally. And I think mainly just have a think about who you talk to. We're very lucky in Britain to have numerous farming charities to talk to. If you can't think of anyone like the Farming Community Network, which I'm very proud to be associated with, and in Lincolnshire, obviously, we have the wonderful Lincolnshire Rural Support Network. Just a case of having to think about your networks and having to think about who it is you share those problems with. Because even the strongest, even those who enjoy really good mental health, even they have the odd blip every now and then. It's as important, isn't it, when things are going well to maintain communication, not just wait for a problem? Absolutely. You know, we've just got to keep talking the whole time because you probably won't realise you've got a problem, but someone on the end of the phone you'll be talking to, someone that knows you well, will probably think, well, that doesn't sound quite right. Keeping the communication up is vital, especially in our game where we do spend, you know, extended periods of time on our own. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, when you say social media, I know it's on Twitter. Where else? It's on Twitter mainly. I've been pushing it mainly on Twitter because I'm not really on the other channels. Twitter mainly, Instagram, and I'm sure it's it's on Facebook somewhere. But no, it's just vital to, to keep talking because your friends, your neighbours, your colleagues are the first port of call in the battle against mental health. But also remember, you know, some of these charities, the Farming Community Network, have a wonderful helpline. The Lincolnshire Rural Support Network have a wonderful helpline. Just remember, you know, you're never alone. Hashtag who's your Julie. Charles Anion, many thanks again. Thanks, Steve. Brilliant idea, Charles. Let's please spread the word. Hashtag who's your Julie on social media. Time for our weekly look at the markets now with Open Fields Kit Dickinson. Morning, Kit. Well, good morning, Steve. Growing markets took a battering into the month end due to a three-pronged attack which led to an algorithmic selling. Get me out of here panic selling across many asset classes, including energy and equities. Unfortunately, agricultural products were not immune from this. The first blow was an increase in the Australian crop to 34.4 million metric tonnes, which was construed as bearish. The reality, however, is that rains have delayed harvest, thereby losing some exportable potential, which is not ideal when their logistic capacity is already maxed out, with big export programmes of canola and barley added to their wheat programme. Crop size and quality is still not yet fully determined, but the likelihood is that with the much increased tonnage, it will either be in their feedstocks or it will be added to their stock. The next biggest blow came with the arrival of the scene of our new friend Omicron, which spread fears across the wide spectrum of markets and talks about national lockdowns along with the ensuing demand destruction. The CEO of Moderna did nothing to calm the fears, suggesting the existing vaccines would be much less effective against newer strains of the virus. And finally came the news that the freshly reacclaimed chairman of the US Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, had retired his phrase, transitory, when referring to inflation. 
This prompted fears of an earlier than anticipated hikes in US interest rates, which spooked Wall Street and sent the markets running to a safe haven of the US dollar weighing further on the market. So moving forward and looking at barley now, the UK malting barley usage figures for this season so far, July to October, were released by the AHDB and show an increase of 10.22% year on year. 156,500 tonnes of malting barley had been used throughout the month of October by UK malsters, the highest October usage since 2017. Beer consumption continues to recover and the higher proportion of malt required in craft ales is helping to further improve the usage of barley here in the UK. Three new spring malting varieties have been added to the 2022-2023 recommended list, which was released earlier this week. All three will target the malt brewing market. Oilseed rape, following the detection of the Omicron COVID-19 variants in South Africa, several countries and territories reported cases of the strain as concerns increased about what is seen as the fast mutating variant. At least 19 destinations confirmed that they have Omicron infections in their region and borders closed as a result of this, casting a shadow over economic recovery from the continuing pandemic fallout. On the back of this, oilseed rate prices fell at the beginning of the week, but by midweek some buyers came back to the market following support from a higher Chicago, Matif and firmer crude oil prices and pressure from a firmer sterling. So looking at prices this week, feed wheat for December is 228 to 230, February 232 to 234, May 235 to 237 and new crop November 200 to 202. Milling wheat premiums are currently £50. Feed barley for December 214 to 216, February 216 to 218, May 218 to 221 and November new crop 180 to 182. Malting barley premiums for old crop are currently £60. And finally, all seed rape, November 552 to 555, February 555 to 558, May 558 to 561, and November new crop 450 to 453. Thanks as ever, Kit Kit Dickinson from Openfield. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Some frosty nights, some showery days, some brisk winds, some cold days, some low pressure. It's December. Mostly dry today, though, with the northwesterly in the upper teens MPH and highs of 5 Celsius. Calmer and around 2 overnight into Monday, which sees the wind pick up, bringing rain from the southwest in the afternoon and highs of 5 again, but down to 1 overnight into Tuesday. The middle of the week brings the low pressure and some strong southeasterly winds bearing rain on Tuesday and Wednesday, a little milder with highs around 7. And the end of the week sees things settle with the pressure returning to normal. Westerlies in the mid-teens, the odd light shower and highs of 7 down to 5 at night. Well, that's that for this week. I'm Steve Orchard. Until next Sunday at 7 or whenever you want, online, podcast and smart speaker. Have a good week.